This is Suspicious Activity Inside the FinCEN Files. Episode 5, Political Will. This is our final episode. We've spent the last few looking at the banks and the way they evade taking responsibility for the dirty money flowing through them. This time, we're going to talk with someone who's been named repeatedly on those suspicious activity reports the banks file. And with two people who've seen up close the way the government has failed to do its part to stop financial crimes. One of those people is Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. He's the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, which has oversight of the Treasury Department. Those faults in the system that the FinCEN files have helped expose, Senator Wyden and others on the Finance Committee have the ability to push for changes that could fix them. And he agreed to get on a video conference call with us. He was in D.C. Ron Wyden, where are you? And I was in my dingy basement where I've recorded most of this podcast. My producers have told me the sound is good down here. Oh, no. Hi. <laughs> wow, I, I did not know you were there, Sender. Hi. Hi. I'm Azeev. So if you remember back to the first episode of this podcast, the suspicious activity reports that BuzzFeed News has based its reporting on were originally requested by Congress in August 2017 as part of their investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Senator Wyden was one of those members of Congress who wanted them. He requested them as part of his work on another powerful Senate committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee. So so you did request a whole lot of SARS as part of the oh, congressional yeah. investigation. Yeah. And you did not get all of them, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that? You can't talk about anything connected with uh, the uh, Intelligence Committee investigation of following the money um, issues. But I will tell you, from the very beginning, I said that ought to be the priority. Ultimately, the Senate Intelligence Committee did not follow the money. They didn't pursue an investigation into Trump's financial dealings and whether they were connected to Russian interference in the election. Whether that decision was connected to the fact that they didn't receive all the documents they requested, we can't say. And Senator Wyden won't say either. But he and other Democrats were clearly unhappy about it. In the final report released in August, Wyden and the others noted that the committee had not looked into Trump's finances. Quote, It should be acknowledged that this was a potentially meaningful area that the committee did not probe. But Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier did try to follow the money. Among the many threads they pulled on was a guy in Donald Trump's orbit named Felix Sater. Maybe you need a reminder of who he is. Here's Anthony. Well, he's going to you know, despise this characterization, but he's a, <laughs> an old associate of President Trump. Uh, he's a developer. Real estate developer, Yeah, right? he's a real estate developer who helped the president... Um, get the so- the Soho New York City hotel off the ground. I believe they did some work in uh, some of the Trump licensed projects in Florida and of course uh, was helping behind the scenes during the 2016 election to build uh, a tower in Moscow. Better known as Trump Tower Moscow, the building Donald Trump wanted to build in Russia. It was among the many things Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, testified about when he was questioned by Congress in February 2019. That Trump was actively seeking to build a skyscraper in Moscow, and that he was keeping his dealings with the Russians secret during the 2016 campaign. Felix Sater was at the center of that project. Felix said in an email to Michael Cohen that they can get their boy elected president and get Putin 
to back this project. But we're not talking about Felix Sater and dredging up stories about the 2016 campaign for no reason. We're talking about Felix Sater because he has been the subject of a number of suspicious activity reports. He's linked to unusual transactions in at least 10 SARS that we know of. And surprisingly, Sater was willing to talk about those transactions that were made by him or his businesses or his associates. You know, for two years we've been working on this and we have not been able to get anyone to sit down with us and to go through each and every transaction. And he did that for two hours. He sat with us and he explained what all these transactions are. And we peppered him with questions about the suspicious nature of it. I want to make clear that Sater has denied that any of the activity we discussed with him is illegal. And it's worth saying this again. A suspicious activity report isn't necessarily a sign that something nefarious has gone down. It's simply a bank telling the government, telling FinCEN, something here doesn't look right. We can't prove that Sater's transactions rose to the level of money laundering or other financial crimes. As a reporter trying to cover this stuff, you hit a lot of walls. BuzzFeed doesn't have the subpoena power of the U.S. government. We don't have access to the investigative tools that FinCEN itself has. And banks aren't allowed to answer questions about SARS either. Which is why going directly to Felix Sater and asking him about all the transactions that banks flagged was so intriguing. We wanted to hear his explanations for why these transactions, millions of dollars worth, were deemed suspicious. Anthony and Jason talked with Sater over a video conference line. He knew he was being recorded for the podcast. And they began by explaining what this whole reporting project is. It uh, revolves around uh, lots and lots of uh, documents where your name comes up quite a bit. Okay. And um, these are these are internal treasury documents from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. FinCEN. Yeah, so you, you've heard of FinCEN. Yeah, of course. Well, if the question is, are my transactions suspicious? No, they're not. Are my transactions suspicious to FinCEN? Sure, a lot of transactions are suspicious to FinCEN. Before we dive into the details of Felix Sater's suspicious transactions, a little background on him. He was born in Russia, but as a kid, his family fled communism and made their way to Brooklyn. He ended up working on Wall Street, then lost his broker's license after slashing another broker's face in a bar fight with a margarita glass. He spent a year in prison for felony assault, got out, then took over a company called White Rock that ran a stock scam that bilked investors of $40 million. When White Rock collapsed in 1996, Sater left for Russia. And that's when this whole other life of Felix Sater's began. Here's Jason. For a long time, Felix Sater had been stating publicly to anyone who would listen that uh, he was building Trump Towers by day and hunting bin Laden by night. And it was a wild tale that people dismissed. But Felix kept pushing it. In December 2017, he was questioned privately by a congressional committee looking into Russian interference in the election. He mentioned this wild tale in his opening statement. And in the statement, Felix Sater claimed that he had worked with the U.S. government and that he was an important confidential source related to dismantling some al-Qaeda operations, providing information to the U.S. government related to North Korea nuclear technology, that he got Osama bin Laden's phone numbers. Jason and Anthony were the first reporters to confirm that what Sater was saying was actually true. 
Felix Sater had worked as a covert asset of the U.S. government. That fact was later confirmed by the U.S. government itself. It started when he was in Russia in the late 90s. While the feds were investigating the White Rock scam back in New York, Felix was working for AT&T, trying to make a telecommunications deal with some Russians. He says he discovered that the telecom industry was totally controlled by Russian intelligence. The GRU, it's called. So in order to make a deal, he was getting friendly with these guys. One night, he was out to dinner with them. And in walks a Southern boy, a little older. And one of the people there was like a major colonel or something in GRU, turns around and says, Milton, you should meet Felix. You, you guys are both CIA. You'll have a lot to talk about. Now, in, in Russia, basically any American who's uh, there on vacation and is not wearing cargo shorts and a camera is probably a CIA agent. So that's not much of a, not much of a statement. So Felix and this guy, Milton Blaine, meet. And then when I went to the bathroom, he followed me into the bathroom. And he said, uh, you know, can I have your phone number? I'd like to talk to you tomorrow. I said, no problem. And we met at this uh, Irish pub, which was an expat hangout in Moscow. And he came out and told me straight away, he said, look, I, I work for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Felix says Milton told him that he'd been trying for years to get inside this group of Russians Felix was now hanging out with. You're sitting there telling jokes with these guys and singing, uh, you know, old Russian songs. Uh, and he said, look, your country needs you. I said, I'm in. He said, well, before you're in, you have to understand that if you get caught, uh, the worst you could hope for is a jail cell. And the best you could hope for is a bullet in the head because you're basically a traitor to Russia. You left as a Jewish refugee. You ran away from the Soviet Union. You gave up your passport, you went to America, and now you came back to Russia to spy on them for the Americans. You could understand what they'll do to you. And I said, uh, Milton, uh, you know, you want to get the show on the road or you want to keep scaring me? Let's go. I'm in. Felix starts working as an operative in Russia. And through his Russian connections, he now had access to military groups in Afghanistan. And so, to build goodwill with American authorities in advance of his imminent prosecution for fraud back home, Sater contacted U.S. intelligence and offered to provide them with information on the Northern Alliance, the Taliban, and Osama bin Laden. Felix says that he was in Afghanistan in 1998, alongside Russian mercenaries and the Northern Alliance, making a move on a terrorist training camp where Osama bin Laden was staying. We needed to march on the camp and take them by surprise at night, cover of darkness, because there was only about 50 of us and there was at least 200 uh, in the terrorist training camp, including bin Laden himself. And uh, that was my greatest, biggest disappointment that in 98, I could have taken him out, but- Taken out bin Laden? Yes, yes. How, how, how would you have taken out bin Laden? Uh, I pretty sure that uh, the only thing I had in my hand was an AK. So <laughs> I didn't have any grenades, but I would have improvised, you know. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck, man? <laughs> that was crazy when you started telling us this story. And, you know, we spent a long time trying to stand up the work that you did for the U.S. government with the FBI and, and, and other government agencies. Be honest, did you believe it or you didn't believe it when I first told you? I, it's kind of far-fetched. No, I didn't. I think it's. I think it was completely far-fetched, but... I, uh, I didn't believe it at all until I confirmed it with people who were involved. 
Dude. And then I did it and I still don't believe it. Okay, back to the reason we've got Felix Sater on this podcast. Again, in the FinCEN files, we found 10 suspicious activity reports raising concerns about him and his companies from six different financial institutions. All of the transactions that we looked at related to Felix Sater really do seem suspicious. But he has an explanation for each and every transaction. Yeah, I mean, they flag you. You want to go through them? You want me to go through them with you? All right, what's the what's the biggest one? Uh, there's one for uh, sixteen million dollars in transactions for a couple of real estate projects, a strip mall in Cincinnati, another in uh, Syracuse. Let's see, uh, the grand total is about a hundred million dollars. Let's take that one example of a mall in Cincinnati. It's called the Tri County Mall, and it's an entity that a man named Victor Krapanov, the former mayor of a city called Almaty in Kazakhstan, was investing his money in. Now, Viktor Krapanov and some of his associates have been accused of looting billions of dollars from a bank in Kazakhstan, BTA Bank. Felix Sater has been sued multiple times by the bank and by the city of Almaty for allegedly laundering Krapanov's stolen money through a number of real estate deals, including Trump Soho and this mall in Cincinnati. Moving funds into real estate projects like this is a classic way to launder money. So Anthony wanted to know, What is up with all the money he was moving around at that time? As part of the financing to buy the Tri-County Mall, Felix Sater sends $2.5 million from an account that he controls to another account that he controls under the name Bayrock Group, Inc. When Anthony asked Sater about this, Sar, was it related to the billions Krapanov and his associates had allegedly looted from the Kazakh bank? Felix had a somewhat confusing and contradictory answer at the ready. I bought the paper on the mall with his money, with Krapanov's money for $30 million and sold it six months later for $46 million. But do you see how a bank could be suspicious of that? You got a guy who's potentially looted his own public coffers. But that guy wasn't involved in the deal. So how would they know that? Was it his money? No. They, they later, in trying to cheat me, said that it was his money. And I said, I don't give a shit if it's Santa Claus's money. You owe me X and you're trying not to pay me. And, and eventually we settled with them. But then when the Kazakhs showed up. So Sater said he used Krapanov's money. And then in the next breath said Krapanov wasn't involved. Uh, and, uh, to be clear, Wells Fargo, the bank that filed the SAR, knew about Krapanov's potential involvement in the Tri-County Mall deal. Because it was detailed in a lawsuit filed in the Southern District of New York. It was like this again and again. Felix Sater explaining, sometimes clearly, sometimes in a way that was very hard to follow why each transaction was legit. Did he open an account at Wells Fargo for the, quote, sole purpose of layering money, as Wells Fargo flagged in its SAR? Of course not, though we understood why the bank might think that. If you read my Google, and I'm already suspect of so many different things, true or not true, um, any movement of money, you know, above a, you know, $300 deposit is going to trigger a suspicious activity report. You're saying it's it's a completely legitimate transaction. 100%. They gladly took the deposit. Are you kidding me? It's a nice deposit. Everybody's happy when you bring the money. He has a point. Wells Fargo did move that money. And they only filed the SAR four years later. It's possible he had his own self-serving motives. But Felix was pointing out issues with the banks that might sound familiar to listeners of this podcast. 
Why wouldn't somebody just pick up the phone and ask, Mr. Sater, we have a transaction here. It's a large transaction. We'd like an explanation. Simple. What's the transaction for? Nothing. They never asked anything. Listen, they're not doing their due diligence. Come on. All they're doing is just covering their ass. They see something that is out of the norm, and bingo, they send a report to FinCEN. Can I just ask you a question? Sure. How do you know so much about what the banks do? Um, Well, I've been doing a lot of business in the last, uh, you know, 35 years of my life. Um, I've been involved in very large transactions. I've dealt in international banking. Um, And unfortunately, when I was 25 years old, I was actually involved in a money laundering uh, situation. Uh, And since then, I've become a bit of an expert uh, on the subject. And that's why the U.S. government came to me and asked me to help them. But, you know, self-taught. This is not something that they're teaching you in Harvard Business School. These were legit transactions. That's why they were in my own name. Uh, Professional money laundering, you really don't money launder using your own name unless you're just a complete moron. You know, you rob a bank, you know, try not to leave your business card behind. I mean, look, let me let me say this to you. I completely understand why I would get flagged in a suspicious activity report. I, I understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. But, I mean, think about these banks. Hold these on. Banks, these, so hold you... on. These, bank, these banks money launder on a daily basis, knowingly pay hundreds of millions of dollars in fines, yet I am doing suspicious activity. Okay. Let's have the uh, pot full the kettle black. All of the banks that we've reported on have denied in their statements to us that they knowingly abet financial crimes. But in his way, Sater was getting at something that plenty of others have suggested, that the system as it exists allows banks to avoid full accountability. That doesn't let any individual criminal off the hook, But it does suggest that there's a system in which it's easy for all players, clients, banks, and government agencies, to point a finger at someone else. So what was Felix Sater up to? I'm curious, you know, it seems like what you guys are saying is that you you showed him these SARS and and he had an explanation for for every transaction that you, you showed to him. What do you guys make of it? I mean... Here's what I paid attention to when Felix was answering these questions that we asked him. One, uh, he answered it very quickly. It didn't take time to really think about the answers. And so he seemed to have an answer right away, which suggested to me that he had something prepared or he's had to come up with answers to these questions before. I I don't think he's totally lying, but I also don't think he's totally telling the truth. He's very gifted at spin. But I think as Anthony and I have learned over the past few years, and certainly uh, after covering the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations, is that there's always more to the story, particularly as it relates to Felix Sater. How did we get here? How did this system get built in which every entity involved is able to say that the fault lies with someone else? We talked to someone who spent years working for the federal government, trying to stop money laundering and other financial crimes. 
Well, my name is Paul Pelletier, and I am a former prosecutor who um, started off prosecuting cases in Miami way back in the cocaine cowboy days of the mid-'80s. Paul Pelletier went from seizing money from drug dealers in Miami to prosecuting corporate executives in the early 2000s and investigating bank executives as a prosecutor in the Department of Justice. And in a way, you can trace the evolution of money laundering laws in the U.S. through him. In those cocaine cowboy days, there weren't real money laundering laws on the books at all. So literally, when I got down there, they were, when I say they, I'm talking about the drug traffickers, were taking duffel bags and suitcases full of cash, bringing them into the banks. The banks would sometimes hire a specific teller just to have a money counting machine, and they would spend all day um, counting the money of drug traffickers and depositing in their banks. And you think this was happening somewhat knowingly, like the banks knew this was going on? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, the banks were receiving the money. They absolutely yeah. knew what was going on. The money was coming in in duffel bags. Um, and um, the, the only law really at the time that was potentially enforceable was a, a currency transaction report. And so the banks were supposed to file currency transaction reports, which were our reports of a deposit of an excess of $10,000 in cash. Some banks were filing them, some banks weren't. But there was effectively no enforcement. So banks didn't feel compelled to stop the flow of money at the time. Then, in 1986, the Money Laundering Control Act was passed by Congress. If banks broke the law, if they were caught processing dirty transactions, they would be held accountable. And to some extent, it worked. The laws had teeth. In the late 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s, some high-level executives were punished for financial scandals. And I thought we were very effective because in the accounting fraud scandals that people know as the Enron scandals, we prosecuted over 850 corporate executives. But then after the financial crisis in 2008, all of that stopped. The world economy was on the brink of collapse, largely due to excessive risk-taking and predatory lending practices by banks and other financial institutions. The government's attitude was that if the banks went down, the economy would go down with them. And in the aftermath of the crisis, the executives at those banks went unpunished for their role in the collapse. Paul Pelletier says that one of the problems he sees now is that prosecutors and investigators at the Department of Justice just don't have the experience to follow through on prosecutions. He says when he was in the DOJ, there was an investment in training. In 2009, with the Obama administration, they, those courses stopped. And this is when we needed it more than any, but um, there wasn't either the political will or the leadership to do that at the time. Um, I, I quit in 2011 because of it. But uh, You did? Yeah. What, what happened? A financial crisis that had never been seen before happened in this country. Millions of people lost their jobs. Millions of people lost their houses. Millions of people lost their retirement savings. And it was all effectively based on predatory lending by financial institutions across the United States that created a huge bubble. Nobody, zero, high-level executives um, from Wall Street financial institutions were prosecuted. How can that be? 
Pelletier says that at the time, he was investigating the CEO of the now-defunct AIG Financial Products, and he wanted to prosecute him. But he was told to stand down. Ultimately, that's why he quit the DOJ. Do you think we'll ever see any, like, top-level bank execs actually get prosecuted? I think that, yes, we will. The Department of Justice is full of prosecutors who want to do that. It's full of prosecutors who want to do that. But it's going to take, you know, public pressure to make that happen. It can be done. Someone has to have the courage to do it. All you have to do to do this is assign enough agents and prosecutors to a task force and to start going after this money as it enters the system. But I'm telling you, it's not that difficult. After a break, more with Senator Ron Wyden, who's working to bring about the change Paul Pelletier is talking about. I wanted to get Senator Wyden's response to the stories BuzzFeed News has published. Reporting that's based on the suspicious activity reports he was trying to get during the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation. What is your reaction to the FinCEN Files project? If I were to sum it up in one word, it would be fury. I mean, the American financial system is at the center of virtually all major money laundering schemes. And our banks and federal law enforcement simply are not doing enough to root out and and investigate the corruption. And what the investigation shows is the banks and the federal government too often look the other way, or in a number of instances, don't have the legal tools and the resources to really go after the crooks. Now, one big takeaway is that the federal government should be dedicating more resources to properly investigating the leads and cracking down on this wave of financial crime. The banks ought to be doing more because the banks can use that position to sniff out money laundering and deny criminals access to the financial system. Finally, the Congress needs to stop stalling. Congress needs to act. One big thing that needs to happen, he says, is that Congress needs to crack down on the existence of anonymous LLCs. They can be a way for criminal organizations and shady actors all over the world to hide their wealth and launder dirty money through the purchase of real estate, like, say, condos in Florida or apartments in some of the most exclusive buildings in Manhattan or maybe a mall in suburban Ohio. Senator Wyden introduced a bill in June last year. The legislation that I've written, now bipartisan with Senator Rubio and White House, provides a straightforward solution to end anonymity and register the owners of these companies on day one. If you don't get it on day one, you can play catch-up ball for ages trying to figure out who all these companies are and all this paper that's been filed in the, the name of anonymous people. So you register the owner of the companies on day one. That ends anonymous shells, makes it easier for law enforcement. The bill requires corporations and LLCs to disclose beneficial owners to FinCEN at formation. 
you know, part of this is that the banks lobby so ferociously on the banking regulations. I mean, banking industry's got thousands of lobbyists and they far outnumber the congressional staff and they're out creating loopholes to prevent accountability, transparency, and the ability to follow the money. As we've discussed several times in this podcast, it's not just that banks are pushing back against regulations and enforcement. They also often don't suffer serious consequences when they're caught breaking the law. There are more than a dozen financial institutions that have been found in violation of anti-money laundering laws in the last decade, but they always get off with a slap of the wrist and get back to business as usual. The FinCEN Files was released nearly a month ago. In addition to the stories published by BuzzFeed News, through the partnership with ICIJ, there were investigations in 108 newsrooms around the world, 88 countries. Since then, here in the U.S., some of Ron Wyden's colleagues in the Senate, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, have made public statements that the federal government needs to crack down on money laundering. But is it realistic to expect, especially in the middle of all the other chaos that's happening right now, that something meaningful can change? You have to have the political will. You got to have people who are going to say, damn it, we're going to use it. We're going to, quaint idea, actually use the clout and leverage you have. The federal government cannot subcontract out its responsibility to ensure accountability and transparency to banks or anybody else in the private sector because they have a different job. They're interested in maximizing their profits. Let's toughen the standards for criminality for bankers who look the other way while their institutions are used to aid international crime and send a message that money laundering ought to have real consequences. Ought to have consequences. That's the thing, right? It's one thing to say what should happen. But Jason and Anthony say they've seen signals from around the world that reforms could be coming. In the UK, there are a number of lawmakers who are proposing investigations. Senator Warren has proposed a potential new arm of the Treasury Department to specifically focus on this. She's in particular seems incensed that the deferred prosecution system is not working and that there needs to be more accountability among executives. We've seen law firms uh, begin their own inquiries on behalf of shareholders. And in addition to that, you know, just the industry, right, the banking industry, there has been a number of articles, columns, uh, proposals, which I will be honest, I'm stunned by. You know, this is American Banker, for example. FinCEN files underscore urgency of anti-money laundering reform. But I think as far as, you know, will anything change as it gets to the political level? Who knows? I think that the, the public is just so used to not seeing their lawmakers come through for them. But, you know, I actually do think they care. I, I mean, I, I've engaged with lots of people, and they do care. I think that they're just, they don't know what to do. This has been Suspicious Activity Inside the FinCEN Files. 
These are just a few of the many stories that BuzzFeed News reported for this project. You can read a whole lot more at the website fincenfiles.com and from our partners around the world at icij.org. Suspicious Activity is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and BuzzFeed News, based on original reporting by Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, John Templon, Tom Warren, Jeremy Singervine, Scott Pham, Richard Holmes, Michael Sala, Tanya Kozireva, Emma Loop, and me, your host, Azine Gureshi. Our producer is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer is Kim Baikema. Editing by Joel Lovell, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, and Ariel Kaminer. Fact-checking by Ben Phelan and Scott Pham. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhivar. The episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, Michael Raphael, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. Music by the band Friggs from their album Basic Behavior. It's a really great record. It sounds even better with vocals. Our podcast album art is by Ben King. Special thanks to Grace Chen, Fergus Scheel, Samantha Hennig, Katie Baker, Alex Campbell, and Mark Schufs. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers of Pineapple Street. Pineapple Street.